Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome back to the Middle East Center for the second of our Tuesday events. Tuesdays are a day where we get to take advantage of what's fresh in the air, usually fresh books in the air, and I'm delighted to be able to say that this week's fresh book comes from one of the most experienced journalists in our area of common interest, Jeremy Bowen, BBC's Middle East editor. And as you will learn from reading this book, Jeremy is the survivor of over 20 wars. Yes. And that's since he started his career in 1989. Jeremy is no stranger to our community. You've addressed a very widely subscribed webinar when we were in the depth I remember it very COVID well. Lockdown. Yes, it was a very, very interesting one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you would say that. Well, not my bit. The other one, the other people. Sorry. <laughs> but I would stress that in 2011, Jeremy Bowen was actually invited to give our prestigious George Antonius annual lecture, the culminating event of our mm. academic year and the most prestigious lecture that we have on the calendar. And then he blew us all off. Mm. Sorry. At very short notice to go out and cover the Arab uprisings that happened to be going on in 2011. That summer it was in Libya and Syria. As it was I a busy old time, yes. It was, yeah, Syria was starting. We no, I'm still introducing okay. you. You're not allowed to talk to me. You just have to look a little bit embarrassed that you blew off our George Antonius lecture, but we will all agree that covering still the Arab uprisings... Still mortified, but I thought it was a good excuse. Didn't you think that worked in well, you know, the introduction? Yeah, yeah. Guilt-tripping you? We're glad to have Jeremy back. He's triggered my guilt. To discuss, <laughs> to discuss his fourth and latest book. At this rate, we could just about give you tenure here. Four books to your name. We'll give you the title of professor. Thank you. <laughs> so this follows on the Arab uprisings, war stories, six days, Jeremy's book on the June 67 war. And now we have the making of the modern Middle East. Mm. What... Jeremy Rightly Brown's a very personal history, tracking over 30 years of his coverage of the Middle East for the BBC, where he has had encounters that those of us confined to the halls of Oxford can only envy. You've talked about how we get to go deeper in our scholarship. You do, yeah. But you are more timely in respect for deadlines. And in that, we get to enjoy the benefit of your research far quicker than you get to enjoy ours. So I'm going to say that the wannabe journalist in me is in awe of being in your company, Jeremy. Oh. Welcome back to the Middle East Center. Now I'm blushing. Thank All you right. so much, Eugene. Th thank you for the welcome, and thank you very much for coming here today and for the invitation. I'm always a bit nervous about when I've come to St. Anthony's because you guys know so much. And, uh, and you know, as a journalist, we always, you know, we have to do things and see things and, and report on them quite quickly. I mean, hopefully over the years, you know, one builds up a certain modicum of experience and knowledge so that it's not all based on what you see that day, that there's some hinterland that one can draw on. So my, my son has just started his second year as an undergraduate studying history at Cambridge, and he is extremely sniffy about the whole prospect of an amateur historian, especially when he works on television, <laughs> daring to put pen to paper and to call it a, a history. But uh, the reason why it's a personal history is uh, the genesis of it is in, um, I did a, it sort of shares DNA with a, a radio series I did that's still available as a podcast on 
BBC Sounds, called Our Man in the Middle East. And it was 25 programs looking at different aspects of what's happened in the last 30 years or so. And the, you know, the target audience for that, and in a sense for the book, though I'll come on to that, are people who really are not like you. They're people, though I hope those who've got the books will enjoy um, And there are several more for sale. <laughs> if you've neglected to pick one up on the way through. I found over many years that a lot of people, of our, our viewers um, and listeners and people who look at the website, they are interested, they're intelligent, but they're not knowledgeable. And when you're a journalist, you, especially in the broadcast me media, you have to be aware that all kinds of people listen to what you say. Now, for example, if you write for the, for the FT, you know your audience. Mm -hmm. If you write for The Sun, you know your audience. If you work for the BBC, then there are people who might see what we do who know everything about the story, about the subject, much, you know, loads. And there are people who are interested but don't have much grasp of the detail or of the background. And so the mantra always has to be never underestimate people's intelligence but never overestimate their, their knowledge. So in the way that you put together, uh, that I would put together a story would be in a way with sort of layers, if you like, like a layer cake, where there's always a layer that someone hopefully will get something out of. And the way you do that in is having the right words, the right pictures, putting it together in the right, right way. You say, say a lot through allusion as well as being very, you know, descriptive. And so I hope the book is something that people who are interested, but to be honest, as many of you will know, uh, if you, a lot of people have got a cut off, you know, in this country, are quite cut off by the complexities that they perceive in what's going on in the Middle East. I think they know that it's something they ought to care about, and they may worry about it quite a bit sometimes, or they may try to ignore it. But even when they're in interested, the, this perception of the complexities is, is there. So I hope that that will help decode it somewhat. It's called a personal history because I, I was asked to do this series that I mentioned. And I thought to myself, well, it so happens that the time I've spent recording the Middle East, you could say started at, at a kind of a turning point, or the beginning anyway of a, of a new, new period. And that was the time when the Soviet Union collapsed, when with the invasion of Kuwait, uh, the Americans, in a much more active way, entered the region in terms of their military footprint, in terms of the way that they, of course, had been politically influential for a long time, but they didn't have a permanent military base apart from their naval base at Bahrain until that first Gulf War. And so what I've tried to do in this book is, is look at various incidents in that, that arc from then you know, from that time I started in Afghanistan with the departure of the Soviets. So it happened I happened to be there that day in 1989 in Kabul. Because, you know, it's a, a quite interesting story, but, uh, and when I was writing it, well, when I was finishing the book last year, Afghanistan was very much in the news. But it wasn't just that. It was the fact that 
I would argue that you know, the absence of the Soviet Union gave the Americans unprecedented, for a short time, gave them unprecedented freedom of action. The things they wanted were authorized in the Security Council. You know, the Soviets in that last couple of months or years, they didn't just abstain, they voted for what the Americans wanted. But at the same time as well, observing what had happened and observing the consequences of the invasion of Kuwait and the threat of Saudi Arabia were those people who'd gone to fight to fight the Soviets. You know, most famous of all, of course, notorious Osama bin Laden, who they, that ideology was from that point, you can argue, I'd say turbocharged by the feeling that they achieved something quite real. And of course, there was that famous incident when after the invasion of Kuwait, Bin Laden went to the, uh, the then defense minister and said, because of course, as you know, he's very connected, and said, don't allow the Americans into our country. Don't allow the Americans into the this, you know, the holy land that we live in. We can do it. People who've returned from the jihad, the veterans, will do it for you. They've thrown up in his ear. And the Americans came in. And, you know, I was in Saudi Arabia at the time, and, and there was, uh, it was, you know, extraordinary incongruous sights. These huge American convoys, women truck drivers, women wearing trousers. In a, you know, in a, when the country was very much in the grip of the, you know, the religious orthodoxy, which had been they doubled down on after, the, after 1979. So I thought it was a good place to start because those strands, that American involvement in the region, the consequences that came from it. You know, I, I've spent most of the last, as a reporter, I've probably spent most of the last, God knows how many years, um, well, most of my time as a Middle East editor, I got the job in 2005, dealing with a lot of the consequences of the 2003 invasion. You know, which I argue was catastrophic in its consequences. And having spent a great deal of time in Iraq and in Syria, seeing the, you know, the activities of the likes of ISIS, you can, of course, it, as you know, you can trace it all back to the opportunities that were opened up by the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So, yeah, so I saw a certain continuum that I could write about that. And so what I've tried to do is, and it's personal because the things I wasn't at, I hadn't really written about, uh, to be honest, because I felt the thing I had to bring to the party was having seen stuff myself, you know, having been in, in Mosul with the Iraqi special forces when they were fighting street to street, fighting ISIS, and, you know, having interviewed Assad and Gaddafi not long before he was killed, and Assad at the height of the war in 2015, you can talk a bit more about Assad if you like, Eugene, but I was completely am amazed by the way, I'd met him before the war at the time, and I thought that, you know, by that time, God knows what the death toll was in Syria, but it was way in the hundreds of thousands. Half the population of the country displaced, half of that half refugees abroad, the country broken, so one family and its regime could succeed. I tell a story in the book. I, I was chatting to uh, 
He didn't, I asked him if he, didn't mind, if he minded me quoting him, he didn't mind at all. Simon Collis, who Sir Simon Collis, his last job as a British diplomat was uh, ambassador in Saudi Arabia. He was in Syria, and he was the last British ambassador in Syria when the war started, when they pulled out. And I said, I remember saying to him at the time, you know, Simon, how would you, to understand, for our viewers, to understand the Assad family, how do you, what's the best way to read them? He said, well, it's very difficult, you know, for us as well, it's guesswork here, a lot of the time, because, you know, it goes on within a family. So he said, my advice is to watch The Godfather, or <laughs> Goodfellas, or one of those mafia movies, because that's what they're like. You know, it's a family business, and you have to give the boss respect. You don't give him respect. You suffer the consequences. You do as you're told, maybe you'll be okay. And uh, so I thought, felt that was a... That was a very neat analogy. But anyway, the thing about Bashar al-Assad is that because he looks slightly nerdy and rather unassuming, as opposed to his you know, rather dynamic, square-jawed, equestrian uh, late brother who was intended to be, be the, the son of heir until he had an untimely death and a car crash, because Bashar looks a little unassuming, people sometimes think, well, it can't be, it can't be. Again, it must be other people who are pulling the strings, certainly at the beginning of the war. Because if you remember, you had this extraordinary publicity. There was this gushing piece, in, notoriously gushing piece in, in vogue about the Assads, and particularly about his wife, mm -hmm. that actually was, yeah, it's a bit of a lead time in magazines. By the time it got into vogue, a desert rose or something, the headline was, gushing copy. I think they probably tried to rebuy all the copies and pop that. <laughs> the, and I think the woman who wrote it never wrote a film again. But, but she, she gave them what they wanted, which was this gushing thing about this elegant, beautiful, sassy, intelligent woman who'd married into this extraordinary family and now they were modernizing their country. And a lot of people thought all of that. But anyway, so when I saw him in 2015, I thought there might be some sign on his face at the very least about what he'd done to his country and done to his people. He looked just the same. Mm. You know, he, I'd aged, for God's sake, he's exhausting trying to report it. And uh, look what I used to look like. That was before <laughs> <laughs> the Syrian War. And uh, the publisher's fault, by the way. It's nothing to do with me having this old picture. And the thing about Assad is he is extraordinarily polite. In, in the most, you know, I'm sure of in the olden days, we didn't know who he was, and some girl took him back to meet her mum. He's delightful. He bring flowers. He, you know, he when when you have private time with him before the the on camera interview, and uh, and he's there waiting in an ante room in this little this rather grand, in fact, guest house at the big palace on the hill in Damascus, and uh, and he's there, and you go and he stands up, and he you very courteous, offers you tea, and and then starts talking about what he thinks. I mean, I think that he, he tries to be like his dad. Mm -hmm. He wants to be the spider in the center of the web. He wants to be the man who understands power and manipulates power and who people respect. And I think part of his problem was he, you know, his father was an extremely formidable man. I don't think Bashar is enough of a chip off the old block to be able to replicate his Dad, you know, he has this strange relationship with his brother and the way that his father had this strange relationship with 
his brother. And anyway, so Assad, you know, by the end, he's, yes, he's extremely courteous and practically breaks his back to try and make sure that you walk through the door ahead of him. And it's a bit of a, it's a bit mind-blowing to, I mean, I don't think he's the kind of guy to turn up at the torture chamber or anything like that. I'm sure he never sees the gore. But he's clearly very relaxed about what happens, and he's a full partner in all the decisions. Anyway, that's enough for me for the time being. You on the contrary. Ask a few questions. Mm. I want to pick up on where you left yeah. off with the Assads. So okay. yesterday, a lot of us were treated to the spectacle of Chris Mason interviewing Liz Truss. Yes. Wow. Eh? Now, God, I mean, who needs foreign correspondence when you've got this built-in entertainment in our country? <laughs> who needs political drama when you've got Westminster? I mean, there's not a better scripted program on TV yes. than the 10 o'clock news. But the question isn't, isn't that. Yeah. It's, you look at the kind of questions that Chris Mason yeah. puts to a British prime minister. Mm -hmm. Now, the interview I'd like you to go back to is yours mm. with Qaddafi. Oh, yeah? Yes. Which was a huge scoop. Yeah, it was, yeah. You know, and it, it took a lot of your fixes time to make it happen. But when you go to speak to an Arab dictator, you have to suspend the rules of British journalism. You can't put the questions to them the way you do it back home. No, that's, and you know, maybe the problem... So could you reflect a little yeah. bit on what you have to do to your principles as a journalist to survive as a Middle East editor when interviewing dictators? Well, to start with, maybe the question is we should be, maybe we are a little too softly, softly, and too respectful to people in the system in which we live. I think, I think Chris did a good job holding yeah, I don't think Liz Truss felt that way last night, after uh, no, that. No, no, no. I think, well, I think, I think he, he sort of held back a bit. And uh, I'll tell you how we got the interview. Everyone wanted the interview. Everyone. Uh, when the uprising started in, what was it, just after Mubarak went. So it was talking about February. Yeah, I think it's when, when it started Benghazi, February of that year. Everyone, to start with, no one could get in, the foreign journalists, they wouldn't let people in. And then the word went out, and it came from Gaddafi's son and heir, safe, that we, he'd offer visas. So we all heard this, and the person who he was communicating with quite a lot was my late lamented dear friend Marie Colvin, who were, for the Sunday Times was killed a year later in Homs. And basically Marie, we, were all, we all thought we had our own connections, okay? But Marie had the best connections because they were with SAFE. And so finally she came to me. I'd known her for many years, many, many years. I was in Baghdad in the 91, 91 war with her and before that in different places in Bosnia and God knows where else. Anyway, so they said, look, it's going to happen. She said, it's going to happen. I've been speaking to SAFE. Uh, we fixed it all. But, you know, she worked for uh, the Sunday Times. So he needs TV. So he said he wants an American TV company and he wants a global TV company. And Sky were there and CNN were there. And so I said you for the global stuff for the BBC. And at the time, Christiane Amanpour was not with CNN. She was with ABC News in the States. So she kept counted as the American. The God, I can't remember his name. I found his name is in the book. The son of one of Gaddafi's oldest collaborators and uh, intelligence chief was the guy who was, I was dealing with, who was this uh, designer 
urban guerrilla. I mean, he, he, we, was, we were all walled up in the, uh, the Rixos Hotel in Tripoli, which is a fabulous hotel if you ever want to spend, you know, in terms of you know, the amenities. The main thing was it had some of the best, I've stayed in many nice hotels, uh, it's, it had some of the best bathrooms I've ever been in, but this guy walked around as if, you know, he'd just been living in a cave for quite a stubble, and he had a, but it was beautifully done because he had a commando type black hat he always wore, but it was cashmere. And uh, the, uh, he had a sort of combat jacket, but it was one of those ones that Italian tourists wear. And uh, beautiful boots, but they were blue suede. And, uh, you know, the, the thing about the whole Gaddafi coterie is they love dressing up. Because as did the, the main man himself, the leader, as they was called, and the leader was, the leader was someone who, who designed his own uniforms. He invented orders of chivalry and awarded them to himself. Uh, he had a fantastic array of medals. So you know, the look was quite a thing in the Gaddafi period. And so he, anyway, we rushed. He said, "Come now, the leader awaits you." And uh, we went down to this absolutely fantastic BMW that we got in and it had suede everything inside, really good suede lining, armoured, and my producer put her recording equipment in the boot and there was a gun rack in the boot. And we got in and this guy Mohammed, he, uh, he turned around from the front seat and he was loving every moment. He said, it's a James Bond car, isn't it? Seriously, <laughs> so we're going to interview Gaddafi. And, and he was right from one of the, the royal families, effectively, of the country. So anyway, to answer your question in a more serious manner, you have to show that you're holding them to account. And, and also, because they are all-powerful in their own environment, you have to really ram it home. I mean, with, because Assad was so polite always, I said to him at the beginning, when I interviewed him that thing, uh, in 2015, I said, you know, I'm going to ask the hardest questions I can think of. He said, ask away, ask whatever you want. Gaddafi, there was nothing like that. He was, he was somewhat out of it. But the thing was, what I liked about my questions to him, which were the bits that everybody used, and uh, is that I, because I, I, he was saying, my people love me. And I said, well, I've seen people demonstrating against you today. Because... And he was, he was saying, no, it's impossible. My people love me. They, and he went into English from Arabic. And he said, my people love me. They all love me. They love me. And I said, I've seen them demonstrating, saying, you need to go. No. And he was dismissing it. I think he believed his own propaganda. Yeah. He'd been in power since 1969. Wherever he went, he was surrounded by a cheering crowd. In the time, I spent quite a few months there that, that year. And I got to know the main faces, because they were all bust in, you know. But they, they were like a sort of people who were professionally employed to be his welcoming party. And I think wherever he went, this had gone on not just for months, it was for years and years and years. He believed, I think, and he was eccentric, tending to loopy. And I think that he, I think he'd come to believe his own propaganda. I think, I think dictators who live in a bubble, after a while, believe their own publicity and they believe and it's complete nonsense and of course he'd hollowed out the country he'd hollowed out the institutions the with the you know once the once the ruling family had gone everything collapsed not that there was much 
to collapse it in a sense. So yes, yeah, so the thing is though that because you know we're also concerned about how an interview sounds and looks, it's very important to say the question, to say it, to say it. You know, I, I mean, with Assad, I was asking him about barrel bombs because it had been documented already. Mm -hmm. There was video. I'd been across because we had some connections with various rebel groups. So I'd been across from regime-held Damascus into Duma, particularly in Duma, in uh, Eastern Ghouta. And I saw the aftermath of these attacks, burnt out buildings, bits of barrel, bits of the netting that some of the things came down in. And, and it was so well documented by then. So I said to him, look, I have seen I've seen the, myself in my own eyes, I've seen the consequences of what these bombs do. And there is so much video around, and he started making a joke about it. You know, he said, next thing you'd be saying, we're throwing cooking pots at them. Pots, barrels, yes, there are bullets, we fire bullets at terrorists, but that's it. And I really pushed him on the point. And he was just laughing, and uh, it's funny what goes through people's minds, what they think is a convincing well, mind. Let me keep pushing you, though. What goes through your mind as a journalist, did the... Interviews with dictators, did you ever feel frightened? Never. In talking to some of these no. autocrats? No, because you're there in a very controlled environment. And you know, if they're allowing the international media to talk to the boss, then you're going to be, they're not going to, I mean, what's the worst thing to do? Is kick me out of the country? No, they maybe. Kill you. Oh, they, you know. Yeah, they, well, that, yeah, maybe. Um, you, could get, <laughs> you could get Musa Sadr. I mean, you know, they're. they're, they're yeah, it's a, yes, you could have a. T accident could happen. Mm. I think what is way more scary is dealing with guys at a roadblock yeah. who, who may have killed someone that morning, physically themselves, personally. Oh. Um, or, what, I mean, I write in the book about seeing the bus at the bus station in Damascus that went to Raqqa. I, I felt scared looking at the sign, yeah. you know, when at the time that, that uh, ISIS was running it, when the, you know, when the caliphate was at its height. I felt scared even looking at the bus and imagining what it would be at that, on that bus going towards the first ISIS checkpoint where you came to the outskirts of Raqqa. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, I, I'll give you one example. In fact, the, one of the reviews of the book said so I should have made more of it and said how dangerous it probably was. But one of the, um, the militias in Iraq, Assad Akhal al-Haq, I went, I saw their spiritual leader in Baghdad and I said, can I come and see you? And that was again, I mean, he's quite a scary guy. And I said, can I come and see your guys in the field? And they said, yes. And so the next day we went out and they were right near the front line where they were fighting the ISIS people. And we went, and I was with the uh, local producer I worked with there, experienced journalist, also a Shia, and he looked he's never nervous, he looked so nervous walking into their HQ. And I said, I said, Leif, what's, what's, what's eating you today? What's the problem? He said, you, you get it, Jeremy. These people kill without hesitation. They, and they, of course they had a record of kidnapping and killing British people too in the Journalists. during the yeah so they kill without hesitation and the leader the, the chief uniform guy in there was a little fellow with the most piercing eyes I have ever seen and he was looking at us and he was saying I've been asked to entertain you here and be responsible for you but I'm telling you if there is any if I think you're lying 
I will find it out. And, you know, he went on these ways. I said, don't tell a lie. I promise you, sir, I will not tell a lie. Because it was, I mean, he was a, you can see these guys got oceans of blood on their hands, some of them. But the reason why it's necessary, I think, for journalists to go to dangerous places sometimes is because I'm a big believer. You know, I'm aware that there are issues about people trusting what we do. And I think that I'm a big believer in eyewitness reporting because I think that is the way to help build trust because I hope that people over the many years realize that if I say something, it's because I've seen it or spoken to someone and not, it's not something that's popped into my inbox or I've seen on social media or anything like that. So that's why, unfortunately, at times it means mixing with unsavory characters. Well, you're gonna mix with a lot of savory characters too. And yes. I think some of the heroes that come through in the book are the people you interview to get behind stories from the way they impact the lives of people like you and me, who are yeah. in Gaza or who are yeah. in Beirut. There are so many nice people I meet yeah. in the course of my, my work. And of course, you know, a perception of the Middle East among people who aren't there and don't know it is very often that it's, you know, this seething mass of you know, war-torn countries. And while there is quite a bit of war, sadly, and even quite a bit of seething, in fact, you know, as everyone in this room knows, there are remarkable people and extraordinary history and culture and uh, diversity. People who don't deserve what politics has thrown their way, basically. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this way that they've been so comprehensively failed, yeah. well, by everybody, yeah. from the foreigners who invaded and colonized or took them over and trying, you know, for their own reasons to their own leaders, to those, you know, no. the, to that generation of military men who took over in the 50s, the Ba'athist, you name it, and any number of false dawns. And underlying all of that, not just crisis of governance, but corruption, which is like cancer. I think in a state, any state, corruption is it's, it's like cancer in the human body. It eats away, and sooner or later, it kills you. Now, Jeremy, I like you. I mean, I'd go so far as to say we're friends, but you're a nightmare to interview. I sense some bosses. There, there, is no, there is no discipline to the way in which you address the questions I put to you, and you have a great way of taking off in your own direction. I, I haven't touched a quarter of the questions I had Sorry, thought I'm to sorry. ambush you with. Yeah, I flit around. I'll tell you why it is. It's possibly you're off because again. It's probably because when I'm on the 10 o'clock news, they say we've got a lot, you know, when you, that bit where you have to sit in the studio and talk to Hugh. If you're the political editor, you get about five questions and answers. You can wax lyrical. If you're the Middle East editor, as I'm now the international editor, they say, we've got a nice long slot for you today, Jeremy. One minute 30. <laughs> <laughs> and the, so, you know, suddenly I got confronted by the broad expanses of Oxford University. Time. To, God, you should have. The soundbite went out the door. I was, uh, I was a... Cheltenham Literary Festival at the weekend. The poor woman only managed to ask about three questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. It actually worked well. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yes. Sorry. sorry no, no, no. No need to apologize because the content is fascinating. <clears throat> You've made this shift from being Middle East editor to international editor. And yeah. if there's something that ties your journalism together, it is war. And there I suppose is a, my subject is war. There is a tendency in your profession that there are war journalists. Yeah. You've covered Bosnia. You've covered mm. Ukraine, you've covered Middle Eastern wars. In other words, if you're international in your scope, it's less to do with politics and more to yeah. do with war. Well, 
As you know, Eugene, wars and extension of politics by other means. There we go. There you go. I'm sure you learned that when you were an undergraduate. And, uh, <laughs> no, I think, yes, the thing is, we live in turbulent times. And journalists like me, we don't really like the phrase war correspondent. It seems to think of either some terrible adrenaline junkie, and they do exist, you know, walking around in big boots, and uh, even when he's back in London. And uh, they do exist. Um, or maybe, you know, a sort of a man from Scoop in a white suit and a cleft stick. And I think that I got involved in, first of all, went to a war because, which was El Salvador in 1989. Oh, you did Salvador? Yeah. Well, I was working in Washington at the time, and so I went to Salvador. And I was just curious. I felt this was a major part of human experience, and I wanted to see what it was like. Right. You know, I was just very curious about, about how it felt, how it would feel to be in a place where people were shooting. I'd never heard a shot fired in anger. I'd never seen a dead body. I've seen so many, I've, you know, I could be an undertaker, to be honest. Um, and what I think is that if you try and cover it in a smart way, then you reflect the politics and you reflect why they're there. If the story is simply, you know, here is um, Stefan, age six, in the hospital bed, he's been blown up, and then you're in another country and you say, here's Mohammed, age six, in the hospital bed, he's blown up, and then if you say you're somewhere else and there's a, you know, what I'm saying is that is that you have to say why it's happening. When, when reporting is about just, oh my God, I've seen some terrible stuff today. Well, yeah, that's okay for a couple of days. But when it's a long running story like Ukraine, or like the Israelis and the Palestinians, or like Iraq or Syria or whatever, you have to get into why. And then you get into the politics. And so for me, the challenge of it is to try and approach it in such a way that people don't just think, God, they're violent shits out there killing each other. They think, well, there's a reason why this is going on. And it's my job to try and explain that. And sometimes we succeed, sometimes we don't. I would have to say, having watched most of your broadcast career, I've been here 32 years now. Wow. Congratulations. That your success rate is one that leaves a lot of the people in your profession as admiring of your work. Thank you. As those of us who are your viewers. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun, of course, teasing you and talking with you and sharing your reflections with yes. this community. I want to, before we break, just recommend to everybody the making of the modern Middle East. My view on this book? A gripping and compelling account <laughs> that swings between gut-wrenching eyewitness stories and dispassionate analysis. I I, I Lay laying bare the hopes and horrors of the Middle East in the 21st century. A remarkable book. He didn't pay me to say that. <laughs> it is what I think. Yeah. And there Thank are you. a few more copies out there, and Christmas is only two months away. Eugene, you're a star. What a gent so you are. Thank more you. than that, before we break and you clap and everything, I'm going to escort Jeremy back to the table up there where those of you who, smart people, already bought your copy, he will sign them for you. And those of you who have yet to buy a copy, please race as soon as we get out of here before they're all gone. For that, I get 20%. But, but now... Please give it up for Jeremy Bowen.